0: Welcome to Mind Rolling Podcast, and I'm your host Raghu Marcus with my buddy
1: here, David Silver, and, and uh, you do the introduction. Yeah, I'll do it. We're 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 kind of thrilled here to have Dr. Judith Orloff with us because of her, well, her her books and uh, you know her insights and. The way she has, uh, she coined this marvelous phrase, uh, energy psychiatry. And we just, welcome, doctor. We're thrilled to have you. Welcome, Judith. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, a couple of words about you. Um, You know, wiki words, really, but... It says there that you're the assistant clinical professor of of psychiatry at UCLA. I I wondered whether that was right. It was assistant clinical professor or assistant professor of clinical psychiatry. Which is the right one?
2: Assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at UCLA.
1: Okay, well, that's, you know, that in itself is enough. Uh, I just want to say a couple, of wor- a couple of words that I learned, which uh, a couple of things I learned about you which were remarkable. Which, they said that you had 25 physicians in your immediate lineage, and both your parents were physicians. So that's, you know, to begin with, that's quite amazing. Really? You know? <laughs> wow. How was that? <laughs> Shocking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so... Uh, Judith, so we have asked everybody that we've had on the show to give us a little bit of a feel as you were growing up and uh, becoming uh, conscious. What were the triggers for your transformation? If you could just... uh, You know, for us, we talked about music and psychedelics in those days and then bumping into Eastern thought and so on and so forth. Let us know... What it was that, uh, you know, what, what was your transformation?
2: Well, it, it's, it's constant. It's been constant from the moment I've been born. But basically, when I, I was born, I wrote about this in Second Sight, which is my memoir, where I always felt like I was a, a, an alien, like a sister from another planet. I never felt like I belonged on Earth. And so my whole spiritual journey and my process has been, you know, grounding in the Earth and being comfortable here and learning how to be human, You know, because my basic attention goes up (laughs) and into the ethers. I remember in my crib, you know, at a very young age, pre-verbal, looking between the spaces and things, you know, and that's just where my attention goes. And so, you know, growing up, I was the only daughter of two physicians. I was a psychic child. Mm. I would make, I would have premonitions, predictions, and, and, and like many psychic children, I would You know, predict scary things because they're simply easier to pick up like deaths and illnesses and earthquakes. I lived in L.A., you know, and my my hangouts were, you know, Venice Beach and Santa Monica and Hollywood and, you know, Topanga Canyon all those places growing up. Those are my sacred places, my sacred stomping grounds, you know, and so I would be this child. I was very smart and intelligent, but I was also very psychic and sensitive. And I picked up energy from people and I would have dreams that came true. And my parents who are quite linear and logical and rational, this frightened them. And so finally, you know, when I was about 11, they told me never mention any more of your dreams again at home. So I wasn't allowed to talk about any of this. And so I thought there was something wrong with me. You know, I was always different. I was always an outsider. I never fit in anywhere towards the center. Never, ever. I still don't, and I love it at this point. But as a child, it was horrible because I didn't fit in anywhere, and I had all these visions. And so I got heavily involved with drugs in the 60s and, you know, tried to escape my abilities so I could finally go to parties with my friends and not absorb all the energy, or pick up, you know, other people's thoughts, or you know, whatever I was doing, that was just overwhelming me, you know. And the drugs, I did take LSD, which was quite, quite revelatory for me. Between uh, fourteen and sixteen, I took it about a hundred times, and it was quite really a, oh my whoa. goodness uh, yeah, yeah, that, never, at
1: that age, my goodness.
2: Yeah, yeah, I never oh. took it again after that, but it was it was quite revelatory for me. However, primarily, I took drugs that shut off my abilities. Um, because I wanted to be normal with my girlfriends and go shopping and go to parties, and so you know I got very heavily involved with drugs. And then um, through a series of events, I had a lot of guidance in my life. I was sent to a psychiatrist. Now I went over a cliff in a in a car up into Topanga Canyon, and you know, it just I, it's all this whole journey. I wrote about my first book, which Second Sight, which took me eight years to write because I had so much fear. About coming out as a psychiatrist and talking about my psychic abilities. I don't use the word psychic anymore. really intuitive. A psychic, is, I found, is too ruined. People go to the Dionne Warwick or the psychic phone lines or wherever they go with it. It's just not worth it, using that word. But intuitive, opening, are perceptual abilities that go beyond the linear mind. However you want to frame it. And knowing someone's going to call, you think of them and they call, getting a gut feeling. I've had all of that and more. Mm. Since I've been a child and integrating all that and learning to, you know, be whole and have that as well as my practical side and my sexy side and my analytical side, you know, all of it coming together as one. That's been my journey. And so the psychiatrist, you know, put me on the path to seeing I had to integrate it all and sent me to Dr. Thelma Moss, who is a parapsychologist um, at UCLA at the time. And so that began my path of, of integration of my intuitive abilities and you know, leading me to the dream which told me to go to medical school to get my MD in order to have the credentials to legitimize intuition in medicine. Mm. Very, very clear, clear, clear dream. And I, I followed it. So here I am. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, you know... Uh, f- we wanted to focus, because there's such a, you've done such a lot of writing and incredible stuff on, on emotional freedom, uh, which I think was your last book, right? Yeah. Um, and I was so taken, we both were, by the book because not only is it full of spiritual guidance and visionary, um, visionary moments, but it's extremely pragmatic and helpful uh, to me in terms of dealing with uh, adversity and particularly inner adversity, uh, depression and all of that. And I wanted to actually start off with a a statement. uh, You you talk about Taoism, and there's one wonderful quote that that you wrote. I wanted to throw it back at you. You said that Taoism emphasizes compassion, helping others, and that the miraculous isn't abstract. It's intermixed in every moment. I think that's a powerful statement. I'd like you to amplify that a little bit, if you would.
2: Yes, it's, um, you know, basically, our life here is short. We're given this human body for a very short time, and then we're going to pass over, all right? And so our, our task, our imperative, is to be able to live every moment of this precious life we've been given and see the miracle in everything everything i mean with a big e nothing excluded and so in taoism and just in in any kind of heart medicine you know the medicine of the heart of life you see the extraordinary in everything you just don't wait for the big things like getting a big raise or finding your soulmate mate or uh, whatever you know peak experiences one can have in life you know i mean they're great but that's not the point really that's only a few of the points in the whole spectrum its everything, you know, finding the ecstasy or the, the misery and everything you could, you know, I want to make this point. I did an emotional freedom. You could be miserable and happy at the same time. Wow. So you're, <laughs> you're not just one state. So you could be going through hell, you know, and still be sort of ecstatic <laughs> in the moment. So you can hold different, different states at once. You know, human beings are multifaceted. And so that's, you know, just everybody realize your time is limited here. And I mean this in a good way, not in a morbid way, you know, whether you're 10 or you're 20 or you're 30, I mean, your time will come and you never know when it will be. And so the way I, you know, to go. And so, you know, the way I look at life is to lead life every moment, you know, like, you know, it could be over at any moment. And I suggest that to everyone at any age, because, you know, time really does quicken as you, as the years pass. And you will go. This is a time-limited experience. And your bodies are just on loan to you, spiritual loan to you for now. And so don't get too attached to them <laughs> if you can. <laughs> and um, enjoy everything.
0: Judith, how do you, uh, just, just this something just struck me, uh, related to, more related, I guess, to um, our tradition and, and, and mine uh, in terms of me, having gone to india back in the day and met uh, neem karoli baba and then started to really understand uh, how i was processing you know once i met just briefly when i first met him i understood that this was not new that i had had this was all my past present and future in one and that I can just let go in that moment, but I would just have to continue to process the karmas that I had accumulated. So when you talk about this, you know, take advantage of this life and every moment in, in it, which is, of course, extremely important, how do you relate that, though, with living through what we call samskaras or karmas and uh, and accepting them, transforming them? They're not necessarily... Built through just you know your the karma of this life, your parents your you know your upbringing, etc how do you how do you connect that
2: well you you do your best not to add any more onto it if you can
1: <laughs> right right
2: <laughs> do your best, but it's not always possible um, but then you know if you if you create something negative or hurtful or painful or horrible you can always try and make amends and go back and make reparations to try and undo the karma in this lifetime that you the havoc that you've created or the pain that you've sown you know um but you know like in emotional freedom i talk about learning from everything and there's a chapter on emotional vampires and these are people that i i think can suck you dry people you know you're just around them you're feeling fine and suddenly your energy is sucked right out of you and and they drain you. And it could be, you know, the, the critical person, the narcissist, the, the judgmental person, the victim, poor me, going round and round and round, keeping you on the phone for three hours. You know, these are all teachers, and you could either develop positive karma with them or negative karma with them. You know, and if you look at anything annoying or painful or as teachers. You know, otherwise it wouldn't get to you. You know, the way I see it as a psychiatrist and just as a a human being on the path is that everything that's brought to me the minute I wake up, or actually when I'm asleep too, is my spiritual path. And so I want to try and do it a different way. I want to try it when somebody irritates me or drains me instead of just saying, you know, oh, this person is just so horrible. I want to look at. What they can teach me about centering, what they can teach me about compassion, what they can teach me about tone of voice, so I'm not snippy and angry and accusatory of them, and learn how to shift the energy of negativity, you know, so that I could have more of the advantage from a standpoint of kindness, compassion, and boundaries. You know, I mean, this takes some doing. I mean, I practice every day, and I'm certainly not perfect, but it's a challenge to me. And instead of looking at, energy vampires or difficult situations or rejections or failures or heartbreaks you know as just pure misery you know try and look at them as how they can prompt you to be something more and better as a springboard to your heart I mean, if ever you don't know what the meaning of something is in your life, because it just seems unredeemable, you know, always look at how your heart can grow from it and you can't go wrong. So to me, that's a great way to to turn around, you know, karma into something Mm -hmm. luminous.
0: Right.
1: You know, for our listeners who, they communicate quite openly with us, and obviously we find that some people are, you know, suffering stresses of all kinds, we all do. And I wanted to just a quote something you quoted, which is so dynamic, of the Buddha. And the quote you, you made was, there is no external refuge. I'd like you to riff on that for a little while, if you would.
2: Yeah, 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 no, no, the only, you come here alone and you go alone, and you develop your soul along the way, and, and you'll have, you know, companions along the way, but then you've gotta let them go. So the refuge, the ultimate refuge, is your own heart. It's how you feel about yourself, is your relationship to your own spirit and to a greater universe. That's the ultimate. That's the ultimate. I mean, you will have emotional refuges along the way with friends and lovers and people, you know, kindred spirits. They'll help, but they're not the answer. The answer is inside in your own heart.
1: Yeah, it's like that stone song, Emotional Rescue. You know, um, it's from what the Buddha said and what you say extensively in the book and, and very in a very clear way, is that, you know, you're not going to get it from the things that you're taught usually as a kid and as an adolescent. You know, money, power, love, sex. Yeah, they're good, there's nothing wrong with them, but this internal, these internal changes are... Now, for someone who is suffering and feels alone and lost, which we've all felt at some time, but for say someone who's listening to this right now, where would you start? And I know this is just a short thing and you need to practice and et cetera, but where would you start with someone who is in pain and lost about their life? Um, what would be the very first thing you would suggest to, to, you know, to start the process of healing?
2: Well, you know, number one, we're all in pain and lost. So (laughs) don't feel alone. You know, everybody has has pain and feels lost, more so at various points in their life. But if you're... When I've woken up at pain, in pain, and lost, I I know what that is. I know that feeling. And I know how dark it can get. And I know how depression or anxiety or insecurity can cloud your vision for everything we are saying so far. I mean, I know that. And at those points, you've got to look for love. I mean, just, you know, what I teach my patients at those points is, number one, the negative voices in the head that tell you you're never going to get this, you're never going to get that, you're too depressed, nothing's ever going to work out. I mean, you can't give that mileage. You have to learn to shut those off by with more positive thoughts or, you know, just saying, you know, you're doing the best you can or call a friend, you know, who can lift you up. I can't tell you how many times when I've been in the deep dark pits where I just call a friend and their light has risen me from that, or at least, at least a, for a second, you know, you know, sometimes you just need a second of relief and it feels better, you know, but it's just life. You know, samsara. This, this, this is pain, and it, it, life goes in sine waves. And you want to do your best. I, I get down on my knees a lot when I get in those states of darkness, or I just I love kneeling. Not everybody does, but I have an altar, a sacred spot. You know, where I have candles and the Kuan Yin statue, and I get down on my knees and I, I, I weep and I pray and I reach out for love wherever I can get it to help lift me up. And I've been in therapy off and on all my life, except for, you know, i am sort of fired my last therapist or he, he let me go because he wasn't approving of a particular behavior that I was doing and I wasn't about to change it at that point. So you no, know, I'm not in therapy at the moment. Which is okay. But I believe in therapy. I'm a therapist and I'm a psychiatrist. Yeah. But you you have, you know, it's another story. Um but You know, you have to reach out for help from those who can actually help you, you know, and not judge you and be able to get what you're going through and not panic about what you're going through, you know, be able to just hold the energy there for you. You can't do it alone. Anyone, you know, who's miserable now or depressed or suicidal or just about to give up who's listening to this podcast, you know, I mean, number one, there's always hope and it all changes constantly. You won't feel this way all the time, but you've got to reach out. You can't do it alone. If you're just with your head in a room alone, that's going to kill you. You know, Mm -hmm. you can't afford to be with those, that head alone. You can't. You just can't. You've got to do something else. You know, like with NAA and 12-step programs, you know, alcoholics and substance abusers and sex addicts and food addicts can go to a meeting. And that's so great, you know, to be able to go someplace where the energy of the group can lift you up. You know, or you could find a meditation group or you could find a psychotherapy group, whatever you need. Or you can find, you know, a sexual identity group, whatever your particular angst is, you can find it somewhere. But just don't do it alone.
0: Hmm. Judith, you just mentioned something, you know, your belief in therapy, obviously, that's your work and and. we, i was just uh talking with Ramdas many of our listeners know who that is because we bring him up a lot and uh, a lot of references around uh being present in your life be here now obviously you yourself in your book have references that way and i i know we've talked in the past um you know, about uh direct connections with Ramdas in in terms of his philosophy and so on and of course he would that was his work too in harvard and and in those days and we were just talking about it and uh, there was uh, we actually we did a webcast and there was a question about you know is therapy helpful alongside of the spiritual path and i you know it's very what you're doing is unusual in my mind because you are absolutely including i mean just in the way that you know you're you're communicating with us you're including that spiritual heart coming from that place rather than uh the vantage point of of ego mind and but a lot of therapists wouldn't you say in fact most of them are are really um in well i mean this is opinion uh people tend to get a little bit more stuck in their minds and and the the wrong per- the therapist certainly can support the wrong um uh, vantage point for a person to be able to come out of whatever it is that they you know they have problems with what, what is your take on that and your insertion of, of of the languaging that you use around the spirit
2: well I'm, I'm a psychiatrist I'm an MD I went did my medical school at USC I did my psychiatric residency at UCLA my medical internship at Wadsworth VA and so I have very traditional amazing training which I value Mm. And it was training in the mind, and it was training in the body. You know, I I got to be in in surgeries and see the body and hold body parts in my hand. You know, as an intuitive, I cannot tell you how useful that is to be able to feel a GI tract or a uterus or even the heart pumping in my hand to get the vibration. Mm. But in any case, I value my traditional medical training. I had a dream that told me to go to medical school. That I needed to have those Western medical credentials in order to be heard. And I totally honor that. And I totally love my medical training and all the linear training. However, the difference with me and a lot of psychiatrists definitely, and even you know, psychotherapists, is that I've gone beyond that, or I include all that with. My intuition, with my a sense of spirit for each person, with energy medicine, and and with the unknown. I mean, these are only words. I mean, you learn more and more and more as you go on. You don't know what you're doing, really. You know, it's just you do use your best to assimilate everything. You know, with all the knowledge, and then the mystery teaches you. And so, I think that's the difference between my approach in terms of how how I live and how I do therapy are not different. You know, it's all part of the same thing for me. However, I do think, in answer to your question, I do think therapy, psychotherapy with the right person is important. I've been in and out of therapy all my adult life to deal with my, the multitude of my emotional issues and believe me, I've had many, you know, because gradually, slowly, I want to transcend them and I've gotten so much better over the years, you know, I'm so much freer, you know, as a result of the emotional exploration. But I think the key element, no matter who you're with in therapy, is that you feel an energetic connection with the person, you know. And if there's energy there between you and the therapist, then something can happen, you know, regardless of their discipline. You know, they could I – w- I was with a psychoanalyst for a couple of years, and we didn't do psychoanalysis, but he put me on the couch and he did hypnosis with me, and I went back and experienced, you know, the womb, You know, I I went back and, you know, a vital memory, you know, as part of the human experience. He, he of all people who didn't claim to be spiritual at all, took me to a place that I needed to go because we had that connection. But the problem with linear psychotherapists is that they stay up in their mind all the time. They're always going to be interpreting everything through that. And therefore, they won't be seeing you with a capital S. And if you're not seen and you're just talking, 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 that's not going to get you very far. I mean, maybe it will get you somewhere. But, you know, what, what my gripe with traditional psychotherapy and psychoanalysis is they're in therapy for 20, 30, 40 years, paying all this money and not evolving into their spirits. They're still talking about their childhoods, you know. And that's the childhood is necessary to talk about, and it comes up in waves over periods of time, over a lifetime, particularly if you had an abusive childhood. However, you don't want to just talk about that. <laughs> you know, there's so much more to deal with yeah. than the childhood. <laughs> you know, so I, I and, and there are plenty of psychotherapists now who are more integrative and holistic and You know, on my website, I have a list of referrals for, you know, spiritual psychologists or energy, the Association for Energy Psychology. These are psychologists who integrate an appreciation of subtle energy in with their therapy work. You know, Mm -hmm. so there's more and more of those out there. But again, you have to find the right person. It doesn't matter really what they say they do. If you don't feel the connection... It's not right. And that's what I want to emphasize for people. You have to feel, you know, when you meet a teacher or you meet a friend or you meet somebody and you know this is happening and this is exciting. You know, I mean, it could even be your they upset you, you know, or they get your buttons pushed. But this is all good. You know, if you have no reaction and you're just sitting there trying to think about things, then it's no good.
1: Yeah, mm. You say um, that's very clear to me what you just said fantastic but you say the soul of emotional freedom is empathy and uh, we we know what empathy is and i think some of us may know the expression empath also but i'd like you um, yeah. judith to to um, elaborate on that a little bit about what is what is true empathy and where do you get it
2: Well, in Emotional Freedom, I write about different emotional types, and one of the types is the empath, and the empath I have a particular interest in because I am one, and what an empath is, and this is different from just regular empathy, an empath is somebody who is open and intuitive and sensitive and um, loving, but... They can sense the energy of other people and take it on, including their stress and their anger and their worry, take it on into their own bodies. So they could become exhausted and sick from absorbing emotions and stress from other people. So empaths are like emotional sponges who take on, who can take on the energy, both positive and, and non-positive or negative, if you want to call it, um, into into the body. And so. As an empath, I used to be exhausted all the time, you know, and I'm a very sort of um, private and I love my alone time and, you know, empaths do that. They need a lot of alone time to refuel themselves. Like, I don't refuel myself with people. Usually, I have to be alone meditating or in nature. I can't be with people all the time because I get overstimulated. You know, I have to, you know, have my, as a writer, you know it's really suiting me well because i have such a strong interior life and i don't get overwhelmed by the outside world but when i do go outside i love it and i love people and i love the connections but i have to be very careful not to be around energy vampires because they'll they'll drain me if i don't if i'm not clear about how to deal with with them or if i go in shopping malls or crowded places if i'm feeling tired or not not centered i could take on the energy there So empaths, you know, are are very different than, you know, let's say um, an intellectual who is very much in their head or other emotional types, which refuel when they go out in public. Now, in like another, I have a, a, are you an empath quiz in emotional freedom? Now, some of the questions are, have you been labeled as overly sensitive all your life? Or do you require alone time to refuel? Or are you very sensitive to smells and excessive talking. Empaths can't, you know, they have very sensitive sense of smell. So you could go into a an elevator and have smell perfume there and it could feel like you're nuked, you know, and another person mm. who's an empath can, you know, say, oh what a lovely scent. And you're like suffocating and want to get out of there. You know, because you know you're you're so sensitive. and, and also, you know, if your empaths often like to take their own cars places, I always do that you know, in social situations, so I don't get stuck anywhere. As I I usually can only deal with being with people three hours at a time and then I'm just maxed out. I I just can't absorb anymore. So I like to take my own car so I can get out and don't, you know, not feel trapped. So I tell my friends that and they totally understand that about me. But you have to take care of yourself in this way. And also if you're an empath that has particular relationship challenges. Because I I need my own space. And so if I'm living, you know, with a man or if I'm in, you know, a a romantic thing with a man, I need to have my own space, Um, separate rooms, separate wings, separate times, you know, to to be together. I can't have too much togetherness. I mean, even if I am insanely wild about him, it doesn't matter. I still need to have my alone time. If not, I feel overwhelmed. And that's just the signature of an empath. Now, one man who I was with for many years was a poet and a writer. He, for, for a birthday year or something like that, he got me a, a keep out sign to put on my door. <laughs> <laughs> you can see it was totally cool with staying away from me, you know, giving me my alone time because he was a writer and needed it. But, yeah, so the partners of impasse need to understand that. And, no, you know, I, I sometimes need to sleep alone. I don't like sleeping with, you know, my partner all the time. I like to go off and be alone in my dream time and you know the, the partners who are not empaths often feel lonely when that happens you know so you have to tell them it's not personal it's not your fault it's this is I need to be alone it's just empaths are a different species so I write about them and I know it's helped many many people who have read the book because the medical profession diagnosed empaths as being crazy or malingerers or depressed or hype quote hypochondriacs because you're always absorbing the symptoms of other people, you know, and, and though the traditional medicine will send empaths to people like me, psychiatrists, to put them on Prozac no. or an antidepressant. And that's not the treatment for this. <laughs> it's definitely not. You know, you have to learn the skills that I've learned in my life to cope, centering boundaries, meditation. Going in water, water is very helpful if ever you feel like your energy is going down and you're an empath, get in a tub, a shower, even wash your hands, drink some water, get in hot springs, go in the ocean, jump in whatever body of water is near you. you know just water is very helpful to cleanse cleanse negative energy you know but boundaries, boundaries, boundaries you know I, I've had to you know, be very fierce about my, my energy needs I, I can't subject myself. You know, t- needlessly to people who are crit- critical, judgmental, talking all the time. I, I just can't stand people who talk all the time. It just exhausts me. You know, talking constantly. Just- <laughs> <laughs> I'm
0: relating with that. I'm relating yeah, to a bunch yeah. of this stuff that you're, you're yeah. speaking of. But, you know, but actually, can I go? I I, I want to just ask. It's how this the empaths that you're speaking of, and uh, how. Do you think it's really, they can set an example to transfer that empathy into compassion, into a spiritual compassion, and and develop something that's an example to everybody around them? Is that something you've experienced yourself and with other empaths?
2: Yeah, yeah, hopefully. That's, that's what happens. Hmm. Like when you meet somebody, and let's say they go for the jugular with you. You know, they're criticizing. And it's a button. Let's say you know, they, I'm trying to think of a button, let's say, you know, they say, oh, you're looking, you know, rather overweight today, Mm. Uh, (laughs) push your button, instead of feeling like you're nothing, or two inches tall, or that you're ugly, or that you're unattractive, or, you know, where the mind goes with all of that, you know, what the compassion is, in that is number one, compassion for yourself, knowing yourself, knowing that you're none of those things. And knowing that you're a gorgeous, perfect, incredible being and you can, you know, work with, you know, an extra 10 pounds or not, you know, that there's a solution to that. So, first of all, being compassionate with yourself. Second of all, you know, learning how to set clear boundaries with the other person so they don't repeat the other behavior and having compassion for them. And this is the big stretch for why they would say such a nasty thing, mm. you know. because stretch. Yeah, big, 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 big stretch. but. You have to try to do it at yep. least, but I mean, you can't always, you know, because people don't talk to you that way unless they're unhappy or insecure themselves. I mean, that is the bottom line. Somebody who is happy with themselves will tell you, you look amazing. I'm so happy to see you. I mean, I've had to tell people, and I, I really am happy with how I look and my body and everything But people still comment, you know, if I I change the color of my hair a lot because I like to play and experiment, you know, and people will make comments and I don't like comments, you know, I mean, like opinions about my looks. And so I've had to tell people, you know, please don't share with me any opinions about my looks, you know, and they stop, most of them, some of them don't, but, you know, some of them (laughs) do Mm. You know, so I. I but, but the way you say that, if you want to set a boundary with somebody, you don't say it judgmentally or snippily or angrily. You just say it almost lovingly, you know, like, you know, oh, gosh, I'd really appreciate it if you, if you didn't say that, you know, or didn't comment about my looks. I'm not comfortable with it, you know, right. and then in and out like five seconds, 10 seconds is the comment you don't confront somebody the worst thing you can do for an energy vampire who says something horrible like that is to confront them you don't want a big conversation you want a very short conversation Mm -hmm. you know you want to get in and out quickly but you want to summon the energy of your tone and the words and be surgical about it in and out and just be prepared that sometimes you have to repeat yourself because people forget or they're stubborn or whatever And so you just have to say, you know, I did I did mention that I really don't want anybody mentioning about my looks again or, you know, whatever your financial status or your marital status or your whatever they're commenting on that they have no business saying anything about, you know, you have to you can practice with a friend. I always tell my patients practice the tone of voice, practice the the sentence you're going to be saying the boundary, you know, with with a friend, someone who's supportive so you can get it down. You know, because when you're in the heat of the moment with an energy vampire, the energy can be pretty wild, you know. Because they're, if they're angry or they're judgmental, they're going to be generating a pretty wild energy field, you know. So you have to keep your center. But if you practice with a, a loving friend, then you can kind of prepare yourself.
0: This is something, uh, brings up a uh, something in my past that we learned. I, I came up through radio and... Uh we used to experiment on the radio using different tones of voice, yeah. right, to, to see what kind of reaction we got. And one of the things we did was, uh, this was in Montreal, which is where I'm from, and uh, we had like the FCC there, was called the CRTC, and of course you couldn't use four-letter words, but we would, uh, we would get on the air, and in lovely day, the flowers are blooming, and then we'd use some <laughs> four-letter words, Never got a call once about using four-letter words because of that tone. Tone of voice is so important in human relations, big time. So I'm glad you brought that up. I have a commercial that I have to do. Okay. And um, David mentioned this to me, Judith, that uh, you did a book with Deepak Chopra. And,
2: no, not a
0: book, uh, a CD. A CD? A CD. Okay, okay yeah. so that CD, though, is available on audible.com. And uh, Audible is one of our sponsors. And I'm sure that some of your books, do you know this, Judith, that some of your books are available on audible, audible.com? Spoken yes, to? yes.
2: Um, I love Audible. And uh, Oh, great. She, yeah, I love Audible. Emotional Freedom is on... Audible, Positive Energy is on Audible. Are you reading or
0: somebody else?
2: Uh, Both, both, right? You know, I think someone else is reading. I never get asked to read. I I read the audiobooks. But I wish I did read on Audible because I get a lot of complaints that people would rather have me reading it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's always better. You know, uh, the the idea of having a good voiceover person when you're talking, (laughs) you know, it seems weird to me, you know, that... You know, just to pick up on what Wait, you said. Wait, I didn't finish uh, my
0: commercial. No
1: it? more. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Go for it. I'm just saying, folks, you can
0: go and pick up these books by Judith. Uh, Dr. Judith Orloff and you can go to audible.com through mindrollingpodcast.com and there is a banner there and you can go through and they will give you a free trial and we get a little piece that helps support what we're
1: doing and that's it David Well no there's another one the Amazon uh, Dr. Orloff is just all over Amazon so you know if you go to Amazon which I thought other Banner portal, whereby if you buy books or whatever you buy from Amazon, uh, we get a tiny percentage, which helps us continue with this. But uh, all of, of Judith's books are on there, and we encourage you to get them through there. And it will help us and um, help Judith, too, I guess. And help
0: you by virtue of you <laughs> uh, gaining a lot of information about what what is our main thrust here, which is uh, we hope everyone can come to get some information about just balance in life without having to be on any esoteric spiritual path, quote-unquote. And that's a lot of what we talk about, and, and in Judith's book, certainly this book which David and I have, have gone through, that is so much... We're on the same page with you, Doctor, for sure. Oh my God, yes.
2: We are totally on the same page.
1: wanted to get into this very fascinating subject of, of mirror neurons, which you go into beautifully in the book. And I've read it, so I know a little about it. But I'd like you to tell our listeners uh, what is the significance of uh, mirror neurons, what they do, and how they help us in the in the in the business of harmony.
2: Well, mirror neurons are the compassion neurons in the brain, and they're the um, they're what allow us to be empathic. And they've done studies where. They have one member of a loving couple go under a brain scan and they prick the finger of that person and the other member of the loving couple is in the brain scan, and they measure that the pain that the first partner feels is registered in the other person's brain because the love apparently connects them, and there's some kind of deep empathy and compassion that goes on brain to brain, heart to heart uh, when one person is hurt. You see, and this really is the brain's answer to all the dilemma of wars and us versus them, and you know all of the the hatred and malice that we each have in us as human beings. You know, I'm not. You know, we all have the whole gamut of what's possible in us, but the mirror neur- neurons allow you to have compassion, and they allow you to have empathy. And the beauty of mirror neurons is that the brain is wired for the compassion you know our whoever created this amazing system of the body included mirror neurons in the the system so that we can have compassion the whole concept of mirroring of being able to see the other person in yourself and be able to see yourself in the other person and it's not us versus them but on an intuitive level we're all one the mirror neurons help us to know that from a biological standpoint.
1: Does that also include the converse? In other words, if you're with someone in a room and you're feeling pretty good about life, and that person's in a lousy, grouchy mood, do those mirror neurons sort of infect you, and do you have to guard against that in some way?
2: Well, emotions are um, like viruses, you know, or like, you know, beautiful things. they're, um, They're catchy. So if you're, if you're an empath in particular and you're around somebody who's anxious, you can take on their anxiety. If you're around somebody who's compassionate, compassion is very catchy too, then, you know, you become compassionate. Um, and so the neur- mirror neurons are activated. Um, so, yes, we, we have this interrelated biological spiritual system. That is constantly at work if you were to be able to have your vision increase and not just see with your linear mind you would see all kinds of bonds and ties and linkages between human beings happening constantly all the time you see and it's thinking people are really other than you that's just some kind of intellectual construct you know on the deepest deepest level we're all human and the human is a very, very big commonality because not everything is human, <laughs> you know, especially when you get beyond this earth. Not human. Human is just here. And, but the human bond is huge, and we have a human family, and the human family is everywhere on this earth and so it behooves us to know that because most people are living in the illusion that we're different than other people and we really aren't but how we manifest what we have may be different you see and what we're talking about today the process of spiritual awakening or emotional awakening process of freedom if you have mindful awareness and you're working with what you've got which means your capacity to be a saint and a serial killer within you it's not just those people you know doing those horrendous murders out there isn't we have that in us and as long as we're hiding from that it's not going to help us you know but we can choose not to act from that point that's real power you see and all of this is, is awakening this i mean this is so exciting it's like a big pot that's being stirred you know and you can you have to see yourself without judgment i mean there's no way around it you are the serial killer and the saint and everything in between And if you want to argue with that, that's fine. But I don't think it's going to get you very far.
0: Mm.
1: Mm. Yes,
0: Judith, can you talk a little, a a little bit about personally your own self? Who, what are the influences? You know, not in the when you were, you know, very young, but as you were coming up, and more recently, what, uh, what, what are you connected with in terms of any kind of uh, spiritual lineages? What has, you know, just uh, advised you in terms of um, bringing together what it is that you offer today?
2: Well, my main spiritual path for the last 25 years has been Taoist. I have a Taoist Uh teacher, and he he doesn't live in the U.S., but he has been probably the most important influence in my entire life and has taught me so much and has saved my soul, basically, you know, in terms of the teachings. And what has really resonated for me, because I'm the type of person I'm a rule breaker, I'm an outsider. I don't like you know. I don't like rules. I don't like disciplines, you know, that are imposed upon me. And Taoism is very fluid, and it's very connected to nature and the elements, which I'm extremely connected to. And so it suited my personality, my mm-hmm. temperament. You know, so I could learn from it without feeling, you know, in Buddhism, they tend to be a little bit too directive for me. You know, it's too much, you know, do it this way, do it that way. I don't, at least that's how I'm perceiving it. Right. (laughs) You know, so, um, so Taoism, though, is more close your eyes, go inside, breathe, focus on the breath, focus on your heart and open to the unseen, you know, as opposed to anything else. So no other directions. And I love free flowing, no directions, because I want to find my way in the energy. It's just how I am. You know, not everyone is like me. People need more structured paths. Um, But I I have part of my Taoist practice is ritual on the new moon and the full moon. We have certain practices by the altar and certain prayers and meditations and blessing of the water and burning of amulets in honor of the phases of the moon. So I'm very connected to my body my menstrual cycles and the phases of the moon and the tides. I live by the water. So it's all kind of part of my general awareness and the water to water between my body and your body. I'm always aware of it, you know, and the flow. So it's, it's a very organic approach to spirituality and life, which appeals to me. And, you know, my teacher, one thing about him, he does not care anything about pleasing us you know, mm-hmm. or getting people to come back, you know, it's none of that. He's not popular, and, and please, nobody asks me who he is because he requested that that I not ever give out his name because he doesn't want a b- bunch of confusion and lots of people. You know, from, from, the fir- from the beginning when I was writing books, he said, please don't include my name in the books because I don't want a lot of people coming here with a lot of confusion. You know, and so, um, you know, he doesn't care really what we think, and if we choose to stay with it, that's that's the important thing. If we don't, and a lot of people have fallen by the wayside, you know, over the years, that's okay too. There's not there's no attachment to that, and that always has appealed to me as the utmost integrity.
0: Hmm.
1: Wow. wow. Yeah,
0: that's beautiful, actually, and uh, the way that you've integrated it, which is you know, obvious, is uh, a wonderful thing because it's not easy for people, just regular us people, to find. A path, uh, it it becomes. Uh, people have a hard time with well, with just Eastern stuff in general, uh, and in, in particular, the more esoteric it becomes, then the more difficult it becomes to for them to grasp. And that's why I think many of uh, the teachers and uh, doctors in in the I mean, Deepak is a good example of this, obviously his ability to translate this stuff so that people can understand it is uh is paramount on the other hand um in my mind a lot of traditions get a little bit um wishy-washy by virtue of the the kind of languaging and appeal to people to better their lives in ways that will you know make them more healthy wealthy etc so i really appreciate how you've uh, manage to integrate this with your work.
2: Well thank you. And I'm really into results because if you don't get results, I don't care. It doesn't work. So the way you know if you have results, you have to listen to your intuition. That's a big primary part of my teaching is listening to what resonates in your body about a teaching, about a therapist, you know, about a friend, about a lover. You have to listen to see if it resonates and it's almost like a gong being struck, you know, within You know, or feeling of knowing this is right for me versus this doesn't feel right or versus I'm bland. I'm not feeling anything. Nothing's happening. You know, you only go towards what moves you. I I interviewed Quincy Jones, musician, composer, extraordinary man. Of course, of course. For (laughs) my book, Positive Energy. And he says he doesn't do anything in life unless he, you know, gets the goosebumps, the wave of goosebumps. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he follows the goosebumps. And the same, you know, for everyone listening, you know, if you're looking for a teacher or a boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever, you have to you know, listen for your goosebumps. You've got to have something moved in you. If nothing's happening, nothing's happening. Don't force it. Mm-hmm. You know, you just have to wait until something resonates in you and don't act out of anxiety. It will. You know, with all my patients, they get a little over anxious. No, nothing's ever going to come. I'm never going to hear an intuition. And that's so untrue. You know, you just have to relax a little and, and be playful. Whenever I teach, you give workshops or, or live, you know, usually I'm really playful because I like being that way. But I also know that my intuition comes through when I'm that way. Mm-hmm. You when to- you're overly serious and you're bearing down and, you know, forcing and pushing, nothing will come. I can guarantee you that.
1: You know, you speak of something which I love. I love the expression. You call it guerrilla meditation. And it's about, you know, grabbing a moment sometimes when things are weird or whatever and you just need to overcome it. And you can't do it by, you know, sort of effort. It's more like pulling back and taking a quick time, even if it's only a minute or whatever. It's better than not doing it at all. And it will give you that thing if you can just breathe and, and meditate. Uh, how, do you, how would you, you know, talk about that a bit in terms of everyone, whether with or without a spiritual path, particularly those without a so-called spiritual path. How do you do that? How do you make it so that you have that discipline to just step back and stop for a minute?
2: Well, guerrilla meditation is something I talk about in Emotional Freedom, and the way I do it, you know, is that I just stop anywhere, like in airports. I have a terrible time as an empath in airports. I get so overwhelmed a lot of times. So I just go in the bathroom, You know, close the stall and sit there and close my eyes and breathe and come into my heart. You know, in the bathroom, on the park bench, on the street, you know, wherever you are, in front of the ocean. Um, I had a friend who had a, you know, busy restaurant. She would go out on the bus stop and sit there and meditate. Just wherever you can, do it. You know, (laughs) you don't have to. You don't have to be on a mountaintop in Tibet. And let's say you don't know how to meditate. Let's say you've never done it before. Just sit somewhere and close your eyes and focus on your breath. That's all you need to do. Like, it's not that complicated. And I know that, you know, a lot of spiritual traditions have all these ways to meditate. But bottom line, you've got to take what you can get and you've got to learn how to center yourself. And when in doubt, close your eyes, breathe, and focus on your heart and just hope for the best. <laughs>
0: Right on. Yeah. Well, actually, <laughs> taking that one step further, because we're talking about it, and we're talking about if you've never had particularly a, any meditative training or in any particular tradition, I think the breath is the most natural and easy way for anybody who's listening for you to be able to just back up and sit and just follow the breath, the rising and falling of your abdomen or the breath as you can feel it going in and out of the nostrils. And this is something, Judith, that we were all given uh, back in the day, Vipassana meditation. I'm sure you're familiar w- with it. And of course. And um, we went, when we went to India and we were with Maharaji, he didn't teach anything. We were just hanging out and having, you know, talk about playing there was a lot of playing and but then he would like get rid of he'd say you know okay you're going to the course the vipassana course so we, we would all go off to the courses and then we come back and he'd say to some other indians hanging out look uh you just came in the course you know how to meditate now oh show me how to how did you what did you learn show it to me and we'd all sit there with our backs ramrod straight and our <laughs> eyes closed practicing and within about five seconds you'd hear this high-pitched giggle look they know how to meditate so and you know at the time it was just play and uh, and then later it was a foundation for us to be able to back away from the world for a moment and you know in some cases you know we would do long courses and doing it for 10 hours a day but be able to to connect with that place that to me is a foundation that everyone needs with therapy, psychotherapy, spiritual paths, whatever the hell you want to talk about it, I think you'd agree a a medit a, a meditative practice, even the most simple one of just watching your breath, is absolutely necessary.
2: Right, and it could be done anywhere. It's portable. You know, meditation yeah. is portable, and you don't have to do it in a special place. You do it. I mean, I'm into the center of life. Like part of my Taoist practice is it's in the world. It's not in retreat. It's not. You know, mainly, it's like how do you put all this pra- into practice in the center of the world, in the center of Sam'sara, in the center of all the chaos? Mm. How do you do that? You know, that's that's what you have to learn to do. You know, and a lot of you know my patients who work in office jobs, you know, who and they get so thrown off by so many things. I just say go in the bathroom for a while. You know, just go in, close the stall. Nobody cares what you're doing in there. You know, just close your eyes and breathe. Just stop center, do not react, pause when agitated and go inside and center yourself and practice restraint of email uh, word and tone. You know, don't just blurt things out when you're anxious. You know, stop. Otherwise you're going to say things you regret. You know, meditation is so great at that. It's, it, it allows you to pause for a moment. Mm-hmm. So nothing comes out of your mouth that you're going to regret later. Because I'm telling you, some things you can't take back. You know, some of the things you you say in the heat of the moment can be so hurtful to people, they can never get it out of their minds. So, you know, be forewarned. Pause, you know, if you don't want the repercussions of that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great, great advice. (laughs) Yeah,
2: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I just want to say to people, you know, it's so hard, you know, if you're in your 20s or, you know, you're in your teens or you're in your 30s, it's so hard to get across that, Getting that job that you're going to get paid $4 million for or getting that movie made or getting whatever you think you want, you know, will not ultimately make you happy if you're not happy to begin with. And I know that is so hard to get. I mean, it seems like when I heard people say that, you know, I never could understand that. You know, it's not that the job won't make you happy or add to your, it won't add to your happiness, but it can't make you happy. You know, that's a big difference. I mean, I always had this thing where I wanted to be on the New York Times bestseller list, and I never was because all my friends were getting on, everybody but me, you know. And so I worked with that over the years, my jealousy and envy, and, and, and I got happier over the years just in terms of my own development. And finally, when I did get on it, you know, with emotional freedom, it made me very happy, you see. And it made me, I felt like I fulfilled a goal, but it was because I already had the other happiness. Like if that's all I had was the New York times thing, you know, way back when it wouldn't have stuck. Mm. So I just wanna, I know it's so hard if you're listening to this, even get this because it seems like if you get that job or that wife or that husband or that whatever you want, that you will be happy. That's what it seems like. And maybe you're just going to have to live to find out that that's not so. You know, what we're talking about today, the going inward and finding who, who in the hell you are, you know, first. Right. So you know, that will help you make the happiness last, you know, because a lot of people, I've treated so many people, I, I live in LA and that's where my practice is, who have everything, where there's big shots in the film industry, this and that, you know, whatever. They're, they're miserable when they lose their jobs and they're not the big shot anymore. What do they have? You know, if you don't have something inside of you, it's all for naught. You know, you develop it along the way. Sometimes you have stuff, sometimes you don't. That's just how life goes. But you try and be happy in the moment. You know, that's the secret to happiness. Then when you actually, a goal actually does manifest. (laughs) And that happens sometimes where you actually do get what you want. You know, then you can really dig it.
0: (laughs) Yes. right, Right. Yes. And isn't it all about identifying with who you really are? and not uh, that personality in that backpack that you carry around with every day. Um, And
2: other people's opinions, you know, saying, you you know, your, their opinions are just such sticklers, you know, other people's opinions about life. Judgment. Judgment and opinions, and especially authority figures. If you feel insecure and someone else has an opinion, then suddenly you're ruptured.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, Dr. Judith, we have come to the end of our time with you for this podcast, and we really thank you. And everybody out there, pick this book up because it is practical help. And every podcast we do, we talk about practicalities, and we get email, and people contact us uh, about giving some tools. Well, there's a lot of tools in here that would that absolutely will help with balance in life. And so we really thank you, Judith. Yes. This has been marvelous. Yes, thank you
2: so much. Oh, it's been my pleasure.
0: So this is mindrolling.com. You can go to and download and stream this show and others of its ilk. And David and I will be back next week. So again, thank you and speak to you soon. Yeah, bye-bye.